Jon Snow is alive. You know what I mean, right? You watch Game of Thrones? In perhaps the worst kept secret in the history of television, it turned out, turns out that one of the few good guys of Middle Earth, oh, sorry, that's the wrong story, one of the most admirable characters of Westeros, who was killed by his own men, was brought, brought back from the dead by Melisandre, some sorcerer or witch-like figure. You know, I can't really follow all these plot lines. It's way too confusing. But one thing was clear to me. It wasn't that Jon Snow was simply wounded and recovered. He was actually dead and brought back to life. When asked by Melisandre, what did you see? What's on the other side? Jon Snow responded, nothing. There's nothing at all. And Melisandre appears devastated, as if her entire world collapsed. And the next morning, all kinds of people started contacting me. You see, we told you there's nothing on the other side, nothing at all. No God, there's no heaven, no afterlife, nothing. The fact that it's a TV show <laughs> may have escaped them. But you know, it did raise a fundamental question. If this is all there is, perhaps four score years on a rock called Earth, or if we're particularly fortunate five score years, if what you see is all that you get, what's the point? The problem is even more acute for those who are not religious. If there's nothing on the other side, no God, no plan, no destiny, if there is no beginning and no end, if it's all just chance and randomness, what's the point? What is our purpose? Where do we find meaning? French thinker Albert Camus dedicated his masterpiece, The Myth of Sisyphus, to that very question. If, as he believed, God is dead, if there is nothing on the other side, nothing at all, why not just commit suicide now, he asks. It's so French. <laughs> Camus writes that human intelligence tells us that life is absurd. There is suffering and injustice and evil, and it all ends in a millisecond of eternal time. So why not end it all now, asks Camus, who spends the rest of the book justifying why we shouldn't kill ourselves. The rabbis, too, asked whether life is a good thing. The Talmud tells us that the schools of Hillel and Shammai debated whether it would have been better had human beings not been created at all. After two and a half years of debate, they took a vote and they concluded, anybody know? Anybody want to guess what they concluded? 
No, they concluded that given, oh, you can guess, it's okay. We're streaming, but nobody actually sees your face. <laughs> they concluded that given all the suffering and hardships of life, and considering its briefness, gone in an instant, believe it or not, they concluded that it would have been better had human beings not been created. But, they added, since we were created, let us most of it. See, that's the difference between the French and the Jews. The French ask, why not kill ourselves now and get it over with? The Jews say, it would have been better had we never been born, but how many people are so fortunate? Only a handful. <laughs> this week's Torah portion, Beha'alotcha, is, sorry, Bechukotai, is about that, making the most of creation. You may know that the names of the Torah portion are determined by the first most distinctive word of the weekly passage. It's often the first word, but not always. In our parsha, it's the second word of the weekly Torah portion. If you shall follow my laws and observe my commandment, thus the name of the Torah portion is Bechukotai, laws, the second word of the parsha, but what was considered to be the first distinctive word. And the Parsha then delineates all the impressive blessings that will redound to you if you follow Bechukotai, God's laws, and a much lengthier litany of curses if you do not follow God's laws. In pondering the name of the Parsha, I've come to the conclusion that the most important and the most distinctive word actually is not the second word of the Torah portion, Bechukotai, laws, but rather the first word, im, if, that word, if, two letters in English and in Hebrew that is easily overlooked when reading the Torah portion might be the most pregnant word in the whole history of civilization. The Bible could have said, follow my laws. It didn't have to introduce the laws with that tiny word, im, if. Imagine how differently we would have interpreted the 26th chapter of Leviticus had the rabbis called the parsha im, if, rather than bechukotai, laws. If contains all the uncertainties, doubts, and frailties of the human condition. In this world, nothing is certain. Everything is a matter of faith. Even in the Bible, which assumes the all-pervasive presence of God, even the Bible introduces the moral law with the word im. If, if you choose to follow my laws, it is your choice. You have free will to determine your own path. 
It is what gives moral meaning to our choices because if we have no choice, if we are coerced, there is no moral dimension to our actions. And since everything in this world is uncertain, we don't even know what tomorrow will bring. All of us need faith. Even Camus had faith, maybe not in God, but faith in something. Otherwise, we might as well end it all now. To have faith is not to have certainty in the outcome or the destination. It is faith in the pathway. But unlike secular philosophies that emphasize the absurdity of life, as Camus argued, we are all Sisyphus, but we should try to find enjoyment and meaning through the apparent uselessness of pushing the boulder of our lives up and down the hill. We should imagine Sisyphus happy, he writes. And unlike some religious philosophies that emphasize turning the other cheek, acceptance of or resignation to the absurdity of the world, that our real purpose is not this world, but to get from this world to the next world as quickly as we possibly can, because this world is too cruel and too absurd. Unlike these, what Judaism urges is protest. Find meaning and purpose in fighting injustice. Don't accept the world as it is and don't be resigned to suffering and evil. Choose Bechukotai. Choose the moral way, laws, justice, righteousness, healing. Dedicate your lives to these values. And on its face, the Parsha seems to be saying, if you follow the moral code, you will be blessed and you will prosper, and if not, you will suffer. Except, it ain't necessarily so. They knew it in biblical times as well. They weren't stupid. Good people suffer, and evil people prosper. And so what the Bible is really trying to convey is that our moral choices stand apart from, the, from our self-interest. We do the right thing because it is the right thing, with the faith that eventually we will be rewarded. But even if we are not rewarded, even if we suffer, we must still do the right thing. It's why in Jewish thought, among the most important passages in all of the Bible is Abraham's protest of what strikes him as God's injustice of destroying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you read the passage carefully, you realize that God welcomes and even invites Abraham's protest. Some religious philosophies consider Abraham's argument with God to be the very height of human arrogance. Who are we to argue with God? Human vanity. See, that's the source of all evil in the world. But in Jewish thought, 
the highest virtue is not obedience. Our heroes were not the ones who meekly accepted God's verdicts. They protested. Why have you done this evil to your people, asks Moses. Why do the ways of the wicked prosper, asks Jeremiah. Why are the workers of treachery always at ease, he laments. You, God, you planted them. They have taken root. They spread because of you, proclaims the prophet. Because our lives are so uncertain. Everyone worships something. Some people worship God. Some people worship gods. The God of beauty, youth, power, fortune, fame, science. Many people today have blind faith, blind faith in science to resolve all of the issues connected to the human condition. They prostrate themselves at its feet and offer sacrifices on its altar. The solution to everything. What we choose to worship and believe, our faith, the path of our lives, determines, in the end, who we are. I stand with all those who, whether religious, secular, agnostic, or atheists, are able to free themselves from the idolatry of self-worship and who prioritize goodness, justice, righteousness, and common decency. What do you believe? What do you believe so strongly that even if those beliefs lead you to hardships, you still believe? What faith do you possess that is not contingent on blessings and prosperity? What is the great principle, the great cause of your life, that even when you pay a price for your beliefs, even when things are hard, even when the promised reward does not materialize, you stay on the path and journey on. Push yourself and ask yourself these questions. The ethos of our days is to consider everything subject to self-interest and personal benefit. But if that's all you have, if your entire life comes down to self-worship, you might live to the age of 100 but still, at the end, you will answer like Jon Snow. There's nothing there. Nothing at all.